Good morning, church. I'm super excited that you guys decided to tune in with us virtually this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Bryce. I'm an H2O and UC alum. I'm now a part of our city campus here in Cincinnati. Uh, so if you haven't been with us this summer, we've been going through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah in a series called Return and Rebuild. So a couple weeks ago, we finished up Ezra. That is all said and done. And last week, John gave us a really, really great introduction to the book of Nehemiah. Today, we're going to be continuing through Nehemiah. and We're going to be looking at the final phase of Jerusalem's rebuild the rebuild of its walls, and more importantly, the opposition they faced and how they responded to said opposition in rebuilding the walls. So just a quick recap of what John told us last week a little bit about walls, why they were important, why this is an important part of the rebuild. We've already rebuilt the temple, right? Like that's the important thing, but the walls are important too because they're a symbol of strength and dignity at this time. And so they're really important. If a city doesn't have walls, they're considered to be in shame. They have nothing. People can come in, take them, no problem at all. And so, it is very important that Jerusalem rebuilds their walls. So Nehemiah, he hears of what's happening, and he wants to go back and rebuild. So, uh, this rebuild happens in around 444 BC. 142 years prior, Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, took Judah, and sent the Jews into exile. About 70 years later, Persia takes over Babylon. King Cyrus allows the Jews to come back and rebuild. And then 70 years from there, so again, 70 plus 70, 140, King Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go back and rebuild these walls. So, before we get into it, we're going to introduce ourselves to a couple new characters that we're going to see here in chapter 4. They're being, their names being Sambalot and Tobiah. So these are two leaders of neighboring regions that are going to be really, really opposed to the rebuild of Jerusalem. So Sambalot is the leader of Samaria. If we know our Old Testament history, we know Samaria and Judah are kind of at odds. They're part of the original 12 tribes of Israel. So we've got Samaria, the 10 northern tribes, and we've got Judah, the two southern tribes. So if you're looking at a map, we've got the Mediterranean, Samaria, Judah. We also have Tobiah, not the land, the person's name, excuse me. Tobiah is the leader of the land east of the Jordan. So those two are going to be trying to undermine this process of rebuilding the walls the entire time today. So I know it's important for me when I'm listening to a sermon to have kind of an idea of where we're going, what we're going to look at, and how this is going to be. So I'm just going to lay that before you really, really quick. So we're going to be in both Nehemiah 4 and 6 today. Don't worry if you're really excited about 5. That's going to be next week. It's going to be really good. Ben's going to bring us the word. But today we're going to be in 4 and then just the front half of 6. We're going to tease those out in small chunks. And then we're going to look back big picture at what opposition they faced and how they responded to such things. So again, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Nehemiah 4. If you're looking and you can't find it, it's about a third of the way through. should be right after Ezra and before Esther. So, let us dig into the Word of God. Now when Sambalot heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of the builders and the armies of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what are, they, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. 
All right, so what do we see here? First, we've got a little bit of mockery going on from our two friends that we just got introduced to, and then we see Nehemiah's response. So, first point of opposition, mockery. We've got some sort of verbal abuse going on here. They said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Now, to be fair to Sambalot, this is a little bit of a tall task the Jews are undertaking. So the wall itself would have been about four and a half miles in circumference all the way around. And the walls in places would have been three to five meters thick and up to 10 meters tall, which is about 40 feet. So we've got a lot of wall to rebuild and we've got a lot of rubble to clear out. So when Babylon came and laid siege, they lit the city on fire. Everything had to crumble. It is all laid in ruins. This four and a half mile square block that was once three and a half meters of stone, 10 meters high, laying there. Big task, right? So to be fair, Sambalot has a little bit of leverage here, makes a good point. On top of that, Jerusalem is not flat at all. If you're unfamiliar with the topography of Jerusalem, it's built on Mount Moriah. So that's where the temple block is. We've got this mountain. And then off to the east, we've got a really, really steep cliff face. To the west, we've got a river valley that's also pretty steep. And down the southern face, we've got these little, little cliffs that kind of all stack down through the city, of, old city of David, down to the lower pools. So that is this big mountain that they're dealing with, building, again, these massive walls. So it's a pretty big task. But what Sambalot doesn't seem to understand is who's going to be doing the work. He asks, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? The answer, quite frankly, is no. They won't be restoring it for themselves. Because what are they doing? They're doing the will of God and the task that he's laid out for them. Will they restore it? No. God will. The Jews are just the tools that God is going to use. So it doesn't really matter how feeble the Jews look. They're not the important part. It matters how strong their God is. And to be honest, they probably did look feeble. I don't know. Maybe that was a very consider very astute observation of Sambalot. But the point is, it doesn't matter at all. Just as Moses did not part the Red Sea, nor did David's supreme accuracy bring down Goliath, nor did the trumpets cause the walls of Jericho to fall, it was never the people or the vessel that did the work, but it was God through his people that his will was accomplished. All right, and then verse 4 and 5, we see Nehemiah's response. And so this is a prayer. The scripture itself doesn't break it up very much, but we see very, very clearly we've got the mockery. And then immediately in verse 4, we start this prayer of Nehemiah. He prays, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Nehemiah is angry. He wants God's justice. And so we know that God is both perfectly just and merciful, and he's imploring God to, in this moment, be just and relatively immediately. Because he's angry. Why is he angry? That's the important thing that we've got to look at here. He's not angry because they teased the Jews. He finishes verse 5 in saying, For they have provoked you in the presence of the builders. They have provoked you, God. They have come after you. That's a reason to have anger. So, we look at this situ of righteous anger. Nehemiah understands who's going to be rebuilding the wall. Sambalot may be ignorant of who will be rebuilding the wall, but Nehemiah is not. He knows that it will be God who does the work, and therefore the indictment that's brought against the Jews in this moment is really an indictment brought against God. Nehemiah understands that to laugh 
in the face of a task that has been given by the Almighty God is to laugh at God Himself. And that is a reason to be angry. Moving on, we're going to pick up in verse 7 through 14. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Adishites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to close, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard against guard of protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By, by ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop this work. At the time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest places in the spaces of the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, with their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Alright, so what do we see here? We've got half the wall done. That's awesome. Praise God. We've got half of the wall done. It's built to about half its height. We're closing the gaps. We're getting somewhere, right? But the workers are tired. The labor has not been light. We talked about the task that this was going to be. It, in fact, turned out to be what we thought it was. It was hard, but they're doing it by the strength of God. But at the same time, their enemies are being angered by the fact that they're finding success. Their mockery didn't stop them. They, did, they, weren't, they weren't turned away by the words of their enemies. And so at this point, their enemies levy the militaries of Samaria and the northern territories that are above Judah, and they plan to attack them. They say, we're, they're not going to know until we get right there, and then we're going to kill them and stop this. And so how does Nehemiah respond? He prays. The first response we should have to every point of opposition is prayer. Next, they prepared for battle. The enemy is coming to kill and destroy, but they must protect the task at hand. For they understand that it is the will of God for them to proceed and finish this wall and bring Jerusalem to its full rebuild. And so this is not an easy task. Samaria wasn't a small place. Again, if we're talking about tribes of Judah, 10 verses 2 here. So, old Israel, 10 verses 2. A little bit of a bad odds, but we're going to be alright. Judah's a pretty big tribe. But... Nehemiah encourages him with these words. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah is reminding them, Hey, this isn't some whim or wild idea that we had. We've been given a task by God for God. And it will be given, and God will give us the strength to complete it. If there's a battle to come, the fight will be the Lord's. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for the community He has made us a part of. Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Alright, now we're going to go into verse 15 through 23. It's the end of the chapter. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. 
From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And so I said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. Alrighty, so what do we see here? We've, we've thwarted the threat, more or less. So God has given them this divine knowledge of this attack that's coming, and they prepare for it. They pray, they respond, and they get prepared for battle. When that happens, alright, so the plan is thwarted. Samaria and the lands east of the Jordan can't do much because they're, they're ready for them. So that plan goes away, but we can't ignore the fact that that was once real. So we have to change what we're doing in the building of the wall. So we must return to the work in a different fashion. The circumstances have changed. The workers are carrying their swords in hand. If you're, if you're carrying stones up or moving rubble away, guess what? You're doing it with one hand. You've got a sword in the other. If you're laboring, you've got one strapped to your side. If you're in guard by day, then you're building another time. We're rotating people, slowing the work down for the sake of protecting the task at hand. Alright, so we've got chapter 4 in the books. We've now unpacked the three big sections of opposition that we see in chapter 4. Um, so if you guys would chip, flip over to chapter 6 with me, we're going to start in there. We're going to do the same thing. So, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now when Sambalah and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalah and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same way. So we've got some new tricks from Sambalot, and he's got a new friend with him, Geshem. So Geshem was actually the leader of the area that would have been south of Judah. So they're surrounded on all sides at this point. We've got people in every geographic location that's kind of opposed to this rebuild. But they're doing great still. We've got the walls up, we just need to finish the doors. But this is not going to stop the enemy. No matter how close we're getting, it's not going to stop the enemy from coming and trying to undermine it. So what do they do? They try to lure Nehemiah away. They try to get him out of the city to stop the progress that he's orchestrating, and they're going to make an attempt on his life. Now, all things considered, the request they sent wasn't particularly heavy or angry, but Nehemiah knew what it was. For all intents and purposes, could have mistook it as just a diplomatic meeting. Just, hey, come meet with us. Let's talk about commerce in our region now that we're all back up and running. Let's get this thing going. Let's unite. Nehemiah knew better. He knew that this was a plan to stop the work and to undermine what they were doing. So, despite the persistence of his enemies, Nehemiah sees that it is more important to be committed to the task at hand than to move on before we're finished. 
I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Nehemiah understands that accomplishing the will of God is the thing. It's not just a thing. It is the thing. And that nothing else really matters. He is viewing his responsibilities in the right lens, which is God first. Picking back up in verse 5, reading through 9. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant with me in an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, that that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come to us and let us take counsel together. And I sent to them saying, No such thing as you have said are being done. You have invented them out of your own mind. For they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So things are heating up. If we didn't quite catch what was happening there, we're going to unpack it. But things are getting a little bit more intense. We need to take a second to understand what a couple key phrases in that last passage to understand the indictment and the severity of the accusations that are being brought against them. So, first thing we need to look at, open letter. Said that Sambalot sent him an open letter. At this time, most letters that were sent between leaders or important people were sealed. It meant that if someone had gotten in there, the other leader would know that the message was compromised. It was an intention to have some sort of, you know, sacred way of communicating that they could communicate with a certain amount of anonymity to other leaders. An open letter, however, would have been available for any messenger, anybody who picked it up on the way to read. And so this was done intentionally so that other people would read it, hear, hey, I heard you guys are rebelling, and start the chaos. Word spreads like wildfire. Hey, I heard you guys are rebelling and that you want to become king. What truth is there to that? Let's talk about it. Let's come out and meet. Once again, Sambalot in an attempt to take Nehemiah's life. So, now we must understand the accusation in the letter. So this time, all of the regions we've just mentioned are under control of Persia. Persia is the world power at this point. Formerly, Bab formerly Babylon, Persia came, conquered them, took the vast majority of their territory. And so anything that you would do to become a king again would be direct treason against the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, who actually gave Nehemiah leave from his court to come back and do this. So a pretty big stab in the back that Sambalot is accusing Nehemiah of here. And this would have probably been met with military retribution had this been legitimate which would have undermined all of the work that we've done in the past 70 years of rebuilding this wall, rebuilding the temple block, restoring the city of Jerusalem would have been undermined by the fact that they were trying to usurp Persia. Not a good thing. So, once again, Sambalot is trying to seed these, sow these seeds of destruction and undermine the task that is going to be at hand. So this combination of things would have released absolute chaos in the minds of builders. Can you imagine... If you had been working on a task for a long time, you're in the middle of this project of rebuilding Jerusalem, you're finally getting to the final stages, and it's going really, really well, and all of a sudden there's a rumor that maybe the guy who, who you thought was leading you into this righteous thing that the Lord had planned for you guys, that you thought was the will of God, is actually trying to do a bunch of hinky stuff to rebel and, and free Jerusalem and maybe cause even more destruction and really just seek his own power, that causes chaos. You imagine thinking, hey, did you know we were building to rebel? No, did you? No, did you? Did you? 
Did, you, did we have any idea that this was going on? This is news to us. That's going to spread like wildfire throughout Jerusalem. So the enemy is coming for them hard at this point, trying to conspire against them to bring this project to a halt, even this close to completion. And so what does Nehemiah do? He calls it out on no uncertain terms. No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Up until now, Nehemiah has been pretty cordial with his enemies. He hasn't done anything that's particularly aggressive. He said, hey, no, I can't do it. Sorry about that. This is, you are lying to me. You are trying to undermine this process. You are actively seeking destruction, and I will not have it. In order to protect what had been entrusted to him, Nehemiah has to face this conflict head on. To be wishy-washy would just be further sowing seeds of destruction and doubt amongst the people. Nehemiah recognizes the severity of the situation and as a leader is responsible for bringing it to a definitive close. For the sake of preserving the task at hand, he must act, and he does. Alright, so last thing we're going to look at from Nehemiah. The very last little bit of his verse, or of those verses we just read. The final prayer he gives is, Oh God, strengthen my hand. If we remember what we just looked at, four times he'd been asked to come out. And a fifth time they brought a massive indictment against him. He is trying to build a wall. He's got enough on his plate. He is overwhelmed by the task of sticking with what is right. It's tough, guys. To do what is right is not easy. Nehemiah recognizes this. says, Oh God, strengthen my hand. Impart your strength to me, your servant, that I may do your will. In the face of persistent and ever-increasing opposition, Nehemiah remains reliant on the Lord. Alright, so what do we do? Is this still relevant? This is 2,500 years ago, Bryce. What are, what are we talking about rebuilding a wall for? We're on the other side of the globe. We're not building a wall as far as I know. Why is this important? You're right, we're not. We haven't been called to build a wall. We've been called to build a kingdom. And there will be opposition. And it will look, quite frankly, a lot like what Nehemiah faced. The game hasn't changed much for the enemies of the Lord. So let's take a little bit here and just look at the types of opposition we face today. So the first thing we saw in Nehemiah was verbal abuse, right? The Jews were made fun of, mocked, belittled for, this, for pursuing the task that God had set before them. And we in all likelihood will be too. Most of us probably already have, in our pursuit of righteousness or pursuing others, have been belittled, undermined. Why are you doing this? This is so stupid. God isn't real. Why are you different? Why are you a prude? Why are you a bigot? It's just verbal abuse from the enemy. The way this world will attack us in our pursuit of the Lord and building His kingdom here on earth will not be light and fluffy. The next thing that we see is the reason the indictment was brought against them in the first place, the rubble. Sambalot looks at this city and says, look at that disaster. It's terrible. You have no shot. Look at all the bad things that have happened there. No chance. No chance at all. Old things that were crumbled and needed addressing. That's all the rubble was. Some of it may have been able to be used again. Some of it probably wasn't. Before the project even started in chapter 2, which we didn't have a chance to get into today, Nehemiah goes out and inspects the rubble. I would encourage us to do the same. Where are we at? Do we as a church, Big C, church 
Universal and Little C have rubble? Do we have things, practices, institutions that have failed and crumbled around us and have caused more destruction? Are there things that we need to move out of the way in order to move forward? If something proves harmful in a way or is a hindrance to the message of the gospel, then it's rubble and we got to get rid of it. How many of us have been wounded by Christians? I think I'm not in your living room. I would hope that all of, not hope, I would assume all of your hands went up. We're pretty broken. We cause destruction. That is a part of our brokenness. And praise the Lord that one day in glory that'll be, that'll be fixed. But until now, it is reality. How many of you can think of a people group that's been marginalized by the church at large? That's rubble. If you can't think of one, I can think of a big one. People who struggle with sexual sin. We can talk about pornography in the church all we want, but I think even more so, particularly the LGBTQIA community. For centuries, the church, in her brokenness and lack of compassion, has alienated a group of people for just a sin struggle, for something that's a little bit different and confusing than what they understand, that they can't comprehend. So, on the grounds of this sin struggle being too big or too different, they've alienated them from the gospel, causing things to become an identity. And now, sin should never be an identity. Our identity should be in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ has nothing to do with their sin. That has no effect on them. And yet, as a church, for centuries we've done this, not just to the LGBTQ community, but to tons of people that are just a little bit different than us. That's rubble. That's stuff that is in our past that has hurt people that will be brought against us saying, hey, look at that trash. What about that? Are you going to do something about it? Guys, we have to address the rubble. We need to take stock of what we have here right now, where we are here right now, and where we've been. If we do not have a good concept of where we've been and the hurt that we've caused and the good things that have come from the church, then we're not going to be very effective in moving forward. We have to acknowledge the rubble. I'm going to take a second here to just say that grace does abound. I know that was a pretty hefty thing that we just that I just called the church out of great we're broken praise the lord that jesus died on the cross for our sins and that every little thing that we've done that is negative or or positive really doesn't affect the outcome the lord is divine he's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish but we have an opportunity to to help that or hurt that based on our choices so praise the lord that grace abounds but rubble is a point of opposition even if it is self-made, we have to deal with it. Even if we had no part in creating it, we have to address it. We have to take stock of the rubble. The next thing we see is a physical threat. So, hopefully this hits a little bit farther from home for us. Most people in the United States don't face a lot of physical persecution for their beliefs. Praise the Lord for that. That is not the case in many, many countries across the world. So, I would encourage us to be going to battle for them on our knees, to be praying for those situations that we can, (coughs) excuse me, that we can be lifting our brothers and sisters up who don't have it as well as we do in their fight against physical, physical threat. Next thing we see is conspiracy. Sambalot tried really hard to blackmail Nehemiah into a bunch of different things to say, hey, you're trying to usurp Persia. That's a big, big task. Let me, let me talk to you about that. Let's cuddle on up here. Let's see what we can do about this. They're going to cons- the enemy is going to conspire against you. He's going to scheme against us. He's going to attempt to lure us away. 
He will do anything to isolate you. He will torment you and try to kill you. He will bring charges against you constantly. I pray that we hold fast to the fact that those charges have been forgiven and that we do not respond to those charges. He will use all of this to undermine your relationship with the people around you and the Lord. So how do we respond in the face of opposition? That is the point. We've seen Nehemiah in chapters 4 and 6 face a lot of opposition. We've seen him respond to a lot of opposition in really, really healthy ways, actually. I'm really excited to dig in to what, what Nehemiah did. So the first thing he did when he faced opposition? Prayer. We must be a people who are devoted to prayer. When they were made fun of, he prayed. When the enemy threatened an attack, he prayed for protection. When he was at his wit's end and was tired and still had to step up and defend his people, he prays, Oh God, strengthen my hand. God, impart your strength to me, your vessel. If we are to be a people who persevere in the face of opposition, we must be devoted to prayer. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church of Thessalonica, implores the people by saying, Pray without ceasing. Guys, we have an opportunity to commune with the Father constantly. We should be doing that. Why would we not? We have a direct access to God. Let's use it. Let's vet everything we do and think through prayer. Jesus himself was a perfect example of this. The night before he was crucified, the night that he was arrested, Jesus spent the night in prayer. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well what was to come. He knew that the end was near and it was going to be a bitter one. And yet he spent the night writing his will with the Father to do what he had to do for the sake of all mankind. He communed with the Father to write himself with the Father, even if that rightness was to suffer miserably and die. So what can we do? Do we need strength? Pray about it. Are you anxious? Are you scared, worried? Pray about it. If I can have just a really honest human moment with you right now, that's me every second of every day. There is almost not an hour that goes by that I don't have to pray against one of these things. Sometimes it's just days of extended prayer. God, Daddy, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I don't trust that you're good right now. Please help me. Come alongside. I'm, this situation is new. I've never dealt with this before. God, you've dealt with this before. Help me. Do something. I need you to do something. Guys, we get to do that. That's beautiful. We get to come before the Father and be honest. He doesn't have any expectations of how you come to Him in prayer. He knows what you're feeling already. Just be honest. Let the pang of your hurt or whatever you're feeling resonate as deep as it goes. Because the Father's been in every deep and dark crevice of you. He knows. He knows. Don't hide it from your loving Father. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Cast all your burdens on Him, because He cares for you. And that brings us to the next thing we saw from Nehemiah. Honesty. And in this particular case, it's in the form of righteous anger. He sees the way his enemies are talking, and he's angry. And guys, that's okay to be angry. But we have to take stock of why. 
if anger is at its core just a protective response to something that is being threatened that we care about, which I do believe that all anger is, then we must examine why. What is being threatened? What exactly is being called into question here that we get angry about? Is it the kingdom? Great. Is it, is it someone's pursuit of righteousness? Great. Is it something that ultimately matters? Great. Righteous anger is a good thing. God invented it, but it has to be righteous. If it's not something that ultimately matters, then we have to re-examine why we're angry. Was it our pride that got hurt? Was it, was it something in us that was actually wrong, that got, that got threatened or poked at? Is that why we're angry? Then we got to weed that out. we got to weed that out. That is not a place for anger. That's a place for growth. And anger is just going to hinder that. But we do see a really honest, honest response in righteous anger from Nehemiah. And moreover, on the note of honesty, God desires our honesty in everything, including all of your emotions. God created feelings. He understands that Satan's going to try to twist them, so they might be confusing. Every single, every single thing you feel, I realize I just said this, but we're going to say it again. It's important. God can relate to. So be honest. You're not deceiving your father. Moving on to the back half of chapter 4, what we see Nehemiah respond to. He actually begins to adapt. This is not something that we see a lot in the church nowadays. We usually wind up sitting in, <coughs> excuse me, sitting in rooms, devising a plan and executing a plan. Not often do we think about the way this is, ways that it's being hijacked and have to adapt. Sambalot threatened and attack. So after Nehemiah prayed about it, what did he do? He changed the way that they proceeded. We cannot be a people that are formulaic with our callings. We can plan, we can understand patterns of behavior, we can sit in our meetings and debate the nuances of what will be most effective in accomplishing our task. But circumstances change. We have to be willing to change with them. If God reveals something for you to do, and we do not bother to listen for how He wants us to do it at every junction, then we're kidding ourselves about who we serve. We didn't serve God's will, we did ours. With every good work that has been laid out for us by God, we must proceed with our hands open, allowing God to lead and us simply to follow. And guys, that's freeing. That's not, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. You're worried about not having control? Guess what? Someone who's perfect does. Let it go. Walk in that freedom. The final thing, and yes, I do mean final, the last thing we're going to touch on here um, from his response is Nehemiah had an ability to persevere in the face of great opposition because he was devoted to the Lord and devoted to the task at hand. Every single thing that we see from Nehemiah in these two chapters is done in the light of who God is and the task of rebuilding the wall. We must build the kingdom in the same way. If we're not fiercely married to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died to reconcile us into right relationship with God, and, excuse me, to right relationship with God, that the fact, that that fact changes our hearts and all we are is meant to know, serve, and bring glory to God, then we bastardize the work of the cross, exchange the truth about God for a lie, and fail to advance the kingdom here on earth. Everything we do, and I mean everything we do, if it's not considered through the lens of who God is, and what we're called to do, then we're going to miss out. And then maybe just little things. 
but we're going to miss out. The life and life abundant that Jesus has promised us is just going to become life. So if you're thinking that maybe life abundant isn't really your situation right now, all right, reevaluate the lens. Who is God? Let's look at it through His perspective and what has He called us to. That's how we get an accurate picture. So, this is a tall task. We've talked about a lot of things relatively quickly. Sorry about that, I'm a fast talker. Um, it's, it's daunting. We have a huge project in front of us in rebuilding. Rebuilding the kingdom. And there will be opposition. And if I'm going to shoot straight, we're going to fail. A lot. And that's okay. God knows. We talked about that already. Praise God that His grace abounds. Praise God that nothing we could ever do changes our standing with Him or how He feels about us. That nothing we have ever done has totally won or totally lost someone for Christ. Praise, the God, praise God that we're not that powerful. Praise God that He is. And He will accomplish His will no matter what. Praise God that we are invited to take part in His rebuild. I'm going to close with the one little bit from chapter 6 here. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Eul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly on their own esteem. For they perceived that this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. Despite all the attempts of the enemy, the task was accomplished. We serve a very, very powerful God, guys. Let's embrace that. Let us rejoice in taking part in rebuilding His kingdom. Let us pray. God, I want to thank You for Your Word, that You are good. God, I want to thank You. Thank You that You are our strength, God, that we face no opposition that You are not aware of, that we face no opposition that You don't want to take care of. God, I thank You that You are a good Father who loves us and cares for us tenderly, God, I thank you that you are right. God, I thank you that we have an opportunity to be with you. God, that we have an opportunity to come and be in community with you. That we have an opportunity to have life and life abundant through you, God. I pray that as we go out this week, we take stock of where we are. God, we take stock of the rubble that is in our past, individually as a church, as a big church. God, I pray that we seek to move forward and get rid of what needs to get rid of and reuse and revamp what needs to be revamped, God. God, you are perfect and good and you love us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.